tension between the religious leaders and Jesus is increasing. In fact, it has become so intense that you may remember that the last verse we read last time was this, Matthew 12, 14. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Why do they want to kill Jesus? Well, because he's overturning much of the religious system that they have spent centuries building. He's threatening their power and influence. He's exposing their hypocrisy. He's doing astonishing works of healing and mercy that no one has ever seen before. He's claiming to have the authority of God. He's implying that he's the Messiah. But he's not the Messiah they want. It's difficult for most of us, I think, to imagine what it would be like to know someone is truly plotting to kill us. Uh, I'm not sure how I would respond to something like that. It's an awful thing to even try to imagine, isn't it? In the first passage that we're going to be looking at today, it lets us see how Jesus responds to knowing that these people are plotting to kill him. And interestingly, the way Jesus responds to this threat on his life is a fulfillment of the prophecies about the kind of character that the Messiah would have. The character of Jesus is as unique as the things that he taught and the things that he did. So let's begin reading in verse 15 of Matthew 12. It says, aware of this, this plot by the religious leaders to kill him, aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. When Jesus learns that the religious leaders have gone out and started plotting to kill him, rather than having his own secret meeting with his own 12-member gang and begin plotting how he will retaliate, like this is two rival gangs in a West Side Story type thing, Instead of that, he withdraws from that place. A large crowd of people follow him, and he continues to heal all of those who were ill, it says. And as he has done on other occasions, he warns them not to tell others about what he's doing for them. In other passages, like Matthew 8.16, Matthew has pointed out for us that the miraculous healings that Jesus is doing are a fulfillment of the prophecies about the Messiah. Well, now, here, he points out that the character of Jesus is also a fulfillment of the prophecies about the Messiah. And I love this. The, the, the miraculous powers of the Messiah are often pointed to as fulfillments of the prophecies, and rightly so. The Messiah's character, though, is also important and unique. There's no one I have ever met who possesses the character of Jesus Christ, and certainly not myself. We have all witnessed the fall of human hero after human hero in our world. New heroes are being erected in place of the old ones that have been torn down. 
But these new heroes too will be found lacking. There are no human heroes who can stand up to the scrutiny of God's righteousness. Every human being who has ever lived shares the same corrupt nature. All of us have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Jesus is the only one who is perfect, possessing the character of the Messiah. And this is what Matthew points out here. Verse 18, he quotes from Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. He says, Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out, No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. This passage stresses the meekness and the gentleness of Jesus in contrast to the warlike Messiah that many were hoping for at that time says he will not quarrel or cry out. What a contrast with the anger and the fighting and the divisions among people that mark our own ways and days that we live in. He says no one will hear his voice in the streets. Again, what a contrast with the protesting and the shouting and the demanding to be heard that mark our own days. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. This is a beautiful, poetic way of expressing the gentleness of Jesus. He's so wise and careful in how he deals with people. Our nature is to fight and to push and to stomp. And in contrast, Jesus, he treads so gently among us that he doesn't even break a tender little twig or snuff out a smoldering candle. It says, till he has brought justice through to victory. This is what Jesus will bring about. But let us not forget how he will do it. It will be done in meekness and humility and gentleness. And it's hard for us to imagine how that will be possible since it's so foreign to how we get things done. But we know it's true. In his apparent defeat, Jesus is victorious. His crucifixion would would lead to his resurrection and his glorification. So we already have an example of how this gets done by Christ. His kingdom will be established and the glory of the Lord will fill the whole earth, but it will be done his way, not ours. We're told in other places that the judgment of God will one day fall on this planet. But that day is not today. Today is the day of salvation and invitation. This is the day that the Lord is saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Verse 22, 
It says, Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? So a demon uh, is possessing this man, preventing him from seeing and speaking. We're not usually aware of demons afflicting people in such overt ways in our own day, are we? But make no mistake that demonic forces are still present in this world and they have nothing but evil intent for every human being. They hate all of us. And they hate most those who have submitted their life to Jesus as Messiah. Fortunately, when we are a born-again follower of Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit in us, and demonic possession is not possible. Greater is the one who is in you than the one who is in the world. We're occupied by the Spirit of the Lord. There's no room for any other. It says, without any fanfare, Jesus healed him. There's no indication of Jesus using any of the theatrics that some are known to use when claiming to exercise demons. Jesus demonstrates real power and authority through the understated ways that he uses. What a contrast, isn't it, from the show-offs that claim to have so much power. This demon had taken over this man's life and inflicted unimagined suffering upon him. This man has been helpless to do anything about it. He has been at the mercy of this wicked spiritual force of evil. But when Jesus comes, he frees this man instantly, and he restores what this demon has taken from him. And the people who witness this healing by Jesus, it says they are astonished. The Greek word translated astonished, it means to be amazed, astounded, to have your mind blown. They've never seen anything like this. And they ask the question, could this be the son of David? Do you remember the significance of that term, son of David? It's a way of referring to the Messiah. They're saying, could this be the Messiah? The one prophesied prophesied about? The one that we have been hoping and praying for? Could this be the one who has come to deliver us? Well, not everyone is so impressed with what Jesus has done here, because in verse 24, it says, But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're at it again, throwing a wet blanket over everything. I want us to notice first that they are not denying that Jesus has done an amazing supernatural thing here, driving a demon out of this man, freeing him from this terrible bondage that has afflicted him with so much pain and suffering. They're not denying that that's happened. What these religious leaders are disputing is by what power this supernatural thing has been done. They accuse Jesus of driving out demons using the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Beelzebub is a title which came to refer to the prince of demons or the devil or Satan. It came from a word meaning Lord of the Flies. The religious leaders, they made this same accusation of Jesus back in Matthew 9.34 when Jesus healed the man who was unable to speak because of a demon. 
It's likely that this same accusation is regularly being made by these religious leaders as they seek to ruin Jesus' credibility with the people. They will stop at nothing to try and destroy Jesus. Not just his reputation, but to take his very life. Remember, these same people are the ones plotting how to kill Jesus. In verse 25, Jesus responds to them. It says, Jesus knew their thoughts and he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus points out first to them that it makes no sense that he would be exercising demons by demonic power. That would mean Satan is fighting against himself. Satan is evil, but he's not stupid. It would be like an army of men turning on themselves and starting to shoot each other. That army wouldn't last very long. Jesus makes the further point asking, if Jesus is driving demons out by the power of the devil, then by what power are the religious leaders' own people driving out demons? They would know better than to make such a ridiculous accusation against Jesus since they would know that it is impossible to drive demons out by using the power of demons. A greater spiritual power is needed and the only power that is greater is God's. Jesus then makes the point that if he's driving demons out by the Spirit of God, then it means that the kingdom of God is here in their midst. And by saying this, Jesus is once again implying that he's the Messiah. 29, or again he says, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can plunder his house. So Jesus gives this parable to help explain what he's doing. Satan is the strong man who Jesus has tied up and is now plundering his house, carrying off his possessions. Jesus is setting people free from the strong man who had taken them captive. An important truth for us in this is that Jesus is stronger than the strong man. The strong man is no match for Jesus. The strong man, the devil, went largely unchallenged before, doing whatever he wanted to do, but there's a new sheriff in town. And his name is Jesus. So verse 30 says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other words, there's no middle ground. For these religious leaders, to be against Jesus is to be on Satan's side. The one who doesn't gather with Jesus is scattering. They are working against him. Let's try to put this in practical terms for us. Are, are you familiar with the rule, and I'm pretty sure you are, 
with the rule when playing a board game like checkers or chess that your move doesn't count until you take your finger off the game piece, right? Well, there are people who are living their life that way when it comes to Jesus. They think by keeping their finger on their game piece, they're protected from the consequences of making or not making a decision about following Jesus. It doesn't work that way with Jesus Christ. He's not playing checkers with us. He's calling us to follow him. We need to make the commitment to do that. I want to encourage those of you who have been trying to keep your finger on the game piece rather than committing to the move to follow Jesus, make the move. Follow Him. You won't regret it. And the truth is, we're either following Jesus or we are not following Jesus. There is no middle ground about it. Thirty-one. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. These verses are talking about what is commonly referred to as the unforgivable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And this sin has prompted a lot of discussion among people uh, throughout the centuries. What is this sin? Keeping in mind the context of what is happening in this passage helps us. These religious leaders are saying the source of Jesus' power is demonic, when in reality the source of the power working through him is the Holy Spirit. Rather than seeing Jesus as the Messiah, they see him as an agent of evil. Attributing the good work that the Holy Spirit is doing through Jesus as the work of demons. That seems to be the sin. What Jesus is talking about is not an isolated act or an intermittent lapse in behavior or confusion about who he is. Rather, he's talking about a settled condition of the soul which has come from a long history of repeated willful refusal of God. The reason a person in this condition can't be forgiven is not so much because God refuses to forgive them, but because these people refuse to be forgiven. It reminds me of the insightful remark that C.S. Lewis made about hell when he said there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says, Thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Concern about this sin has caused unnecessary anxiety for some people who worry that they may have committed this unforgivable sin. 
And I want to say that if you're worried that you may have committed this sin, then you most certainly definitely have not committed it. The person who has committed this sin doesn't care if they've committed it or not. Thirty-three. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For if you're For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. In a nutshell, this is a heart issue, is what he's saying. The fruit that comes from our life originates from our heart. The things we say are an expression of what is in our heart. In Mark 7, 20, Jesus said something Uh, very similar to this, same idea, when he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. The Lord knows our heart. He sees inside of us, doesn't He? He knows our thoughts and intentions. He knows our motives. He knows our plans. He knows our plotting. He knows everything. There's nothing hidden from Him. In Hebrews 4.12 it says, For the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. There's an interesting connection here when we consider that the Word of God judges our words. Verse 38, then, it says, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, they ask Jesus to give them a miraculous sign which will authenticate the things that he is saying and who he is claiming to be. If he will do that for them, then they will believe in him. Well, if you have been following along, even partially awake, you will have noticed that Jesus has given many miraculous signs already. 
These people, they don't need a sign. They've been given many signs. They refuse to believe in spite of the signs that they have been given. And so Jesus tells him that this is a wicked and adulterous generation that is asking for a sign. People still use a similar excuse for why they don't believe Jesus is Messiah. People will say, give me a sign. Let me see a real miracle, then I'm, and then I'll believe and I'll follow Jesus. And we've talked about this before. But witnessing a miracle is not enough by itself to produce saving faith. I mean, these people are refusing to believe in spite of the miraculous signs before them. In fact, they're saying that the things that Jesus is doing are works of demonic forces rather than good. You're not going to find convincing evidence that will not also require faith. But you will find enough evidence for faith if you have an open heart and mind to Jesus. See, our relationship with the Lord in this life will always require faith. He's designed it that way. Hebrews 11:6 6, it says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Our relationship in this life will always require faith. This is not a scientific experiment. It's a walk of faith that he has called us to. He gives us evidence enough for faith. But we will not have enough evidence that we would not require faith or this relationship. These people tell Jesus to give them a sign and they'll believe and he refuses. He's not going to perform for them like he's a circus animal. Do a trick for us, Jesus. No. Jesus tells them that the only sign that they'll be given is the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was three days in the belly of the great fish, so Jesus will be three days in the heart of the earth. Jesus is making reference here to his death and resurrection. This will be the great sign given, which will demonstrate that Jesus is Messiah. He will overcome death itself. Romans 1.3, Paul wrote, regarding his son who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. We learn, though, in Luke 16, 31, that even if someone were to rise from the dead, the hard-hearted will not be convinced and believe. As we said a moment ago, miraculous signs alone will not produce Saving faith. 41. says, The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The Ninevites were the people of the city of Nineveh who Jonah preached to, warning them of the coming 
judgment of God. And it says that they humbled themselves, they repented of their great sins, and they cried out to God for mercy, and he relented. Jesus says, now one greater than Jonah is here, and these people are refusing him. Then 42, says, the queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is, is here. The queen of the south, or the queen of Sheba, traveled a great distance to listen to Solomon's amazing wisdom and to give him tremendous gifts of gold and spices and precious gemstones. And now one greater than Solomon is here, and these people are refusing him. Finally, 43 through 45, it says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, so Jesus is now bringing us back to what started this discussion in verse 22, when he freed this demon-possessed man from this demon. It says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. It's not enough that a demon be driven from a person's life. The person's life needs to be reoccupied by something else, namely the Lord. If a house, a person's life, is emptied of its unwanted occupants, swept clean, put back in order, but then left vacant, it's in a vulnerable condition where an even worse situation can result. Jesus doesn't do that with a person's life. He doesn't just clean the house and leave it empty to be refilled with stuff more awful than before. Instead, when a person comes to Jesus Christ, putting their faith in Him, giving Him their life, He fills them with the Holy Spirit and the new life of Jesus gives this person, that He gives this person, begins growing and occupying them. He ends with this remark where he says, that's how it will be with this wicked generation. He's making this remark directed at the same people that he's been addressing throughout this extended teaching passage here. Their refusal to believe in Jesus will result in a worse condition for them than what they started with. The blessing of the Messiah has begun to be realized for them through the many signs and blessings that Jesus has given. This man being freed from this demon is an example. But for these people to benefit from these blessings and not have faith in Jesus as Messiah will end badly for them. An encounter with Jesus Christ should end in our salvation. Becoming a follower of Jesus, having him change our life through the new indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Many people like the idea 
of Jesus. And they embrace some of the morals of Jesus, some of the ideas of Jesus. But they stop short of fully embracing all of Him as their Savior and Lord and following Him. And that is a dangerous response to Jesus Christ. As we talked about earlier, there is no middle ground when it comes to Jesus Christ. We are either a follower of Jesus or we are not a follower of Jesus. Trying to occupy some middle ground is like that empty house which was initially cleaned but then never occupied by Jesus Himself. I want to encourage you to go all the way with Jesus Christ. Take your finger off the game piece of your life and make the commitment. Make the move. Follow Jesus with your life. It's the best decision you will ever make in this life. Amen. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your good word. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your character, for your miracle-working power, and we thank you for your character that shows us what a human being is supposed to be. And Lord, we ask that you would make us like you. Continue that good work in us. Continue to grow your life in us, Lord. Continue to do the good work in us that you have started, Lord. And may your spirit do good work through us. Make these things so, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.